Sports Island is a complete sports podcast covering all major news and topics from across the PGA Tour, NFL, NBA, NHL, MLB, and NCAA. This podcast focuses on sports only, as political, racial, and social issues are not discussed. If you are a sports fan and are looking to stay up to date on all of the major news and topics from across the major sports, then Sports Island is truly your getaway destination. You're listening to the Sports Island Podcast with your host, Rick Mitchell. And now, the Sports Island Podcast. Yes, indeed, it is another episode of the podcast. This is version 25 of the show. And again, if you like what you've listened to thus far, I encourage you to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast. It is available on all major podcast platforms. And man, I got a good one for you this week. Uh, We've arrived at Super Bowl 55. Uh, We'll have an expanded preview of that, as well as an in-depth recap of how we got to this point. And of course, bring you some other news from across the other sports. Uh, But we'll jump right in like we usually do on the PGA Tour. And this past weekend's tournament was the American Express. And that was at the PGA West Stadium course in La Quinta, California. That course played a par 72 and it was 7,113 yards. Uh, the coolest part of the course was the 17th hole, and it was an island green with a nickname of Alcatraz, and uh, it proved to be uh, pretty tough for some guys and made for some entertaining golf. And we did have a pretty solid field of players this past weekend. Some of the top-ranked players in the world were out there, and uh, no amateurs in the field this past week, as there have been here in years past. Uh, they they nixed the amateurs this year, but uh, we saw some really low scores again for the third week in a row. We we had guys uh, lower than twenty under par, which these guys are just playing incredible golf right now. Uh, but the winner at the end of it was Siwoo Kim. He won with a score of twenty three under par, and that was his third career victory on tour, his first since two thousand seventeen. He went 6-under in the first round and 8-under in the final round. And in that final round, the clubhouse leader at the time was Patrick Cantlay with a score of 22-under par. So Siwoo Kim comes up to 16, 17, and 18. And uh, he's down uh, by a shot. So he ends up birdieing 16 to tie birdieing 17 to take a one-shot lead, and then parring 18 to become the champion of the American Express. So Patrick Cantlay finished second, of course, at 22 under par. And the interesting thing about Cantlay is he made the cut right on the button at four under par. So barely makes it in. And then in his last two rounds, 36 holes, He birdied 20 out of those 36. He went out on Saturday and fired a 7-under and then came back on Sunday and just went absolutely nuclear with a bogey-free 11-under round of 61. Uh, 
It was just absolutely incredible. I kept when, when I was looking at the scores, I kept refreshing it, and I could not believe how many birdies he was throwing up. It was insane. Uh, Cantlay was on a mission uh, that that weekend, but he actually, like I said, he was the clubhouse leader uh, for a moment until Siwoo Kim, who was several holes behind him, uh, went ahead and took the lead after birdieing 17, parring 18. Third place finisher was Cameron Davis, score of 20 under par. Uh, he was only six under after two rounds, but he uh, fired a six under 66 in round three and an eight under 64 uh, in Sunday's final round to jump up the leaderboard. Uh, fourth place finisher was Tony Finau, 19 under par. And Finau was actually 10 under after two rounds. And he had rounds of 67 and 68 over the weekend, um, which is not great, but it was enough to get him to 19 under and give him fourth place. Now, last week, you'll probably recognize a couple of those names, Cantlay and Finau, as my picks to click. And we'll get into here in a second. But uh, I mentioned that Finau is just a birdie machine. Uh, well, he made 27 birdies over the course of the weekend. And this uh, top 10 finish for Finau was actually his 34th top 10 finish since his last win on tour, which was the beginning of the 2016-2017 season. And that's the most by far in that time span the next closest is Tommy Fleetwood with 16 top 10 finishes since his last win. So Finau's a birdie machine. He's a top 10 machine. And uh, that'll lead us right into Rick's picks to click from the American Express. So last week, I went 0 for 3. Did not do well at all. But definitely redeemed myself this week. My first pick to click that I gave you was Tony Finau. And I just talked about him uh, finishing fourth in his 34th top 10 finish since his last win. So I definitely clicked on Finau. My second pick to click from this past weekend was Matthew Wolf. Um, he had not played since the Masters in November. He missed the cut there, and his prior two events to that, he did not finish well. But his prior two events to those last three, he had back-to-back second-place finishes, including one at the U.S. Open. He's from California, so he's familiar with California coastline golf, so I assumed that uh, he would come out and uh, play decent, but such was not the case because he finished at 8 under par, which was tied for 40th. He made the cut by one shot after shooting an even par in round one, and he only played the weekend rounds at a combined score of three under. So Wolf's woes continued uh, this week, and he did not click for me. But the final pick to click that I gave you was Patrick Cantlay, and I just discussed how good he was, the outrageous 11 under on Sunday to make him finish at 22 under par and a second-place finish. So he, uh, I did click on two out of the three, picks this week, including two in the top four. So great week for Rick's picks to click. But that'll lead us into this weekend's tournament, which is the Farmers Insurance Open. And that is at the Torrey Pines Golf Course uh, in La Jolla, California. It's a par 72 and distance is 7,258 yards. 
So this weekend, they will be using both the north and the south courses for the first two rounds until the cuts are made. And after the cuts are made, they will only use the south course for the duration of the weekend. Now, Torrey Pines is actually the site of the 2021 U.S. Open, which is coming later this summer. So it'll be a good warm-up for a major championship here in the next few months. And we have a pretty solid field again this week. Uh, we got some sponsor exemptions out there as well. But uh, we'll check out Rick's picks to click for this weekend's Farmers Insurance Open. First pick I'm going to give you, it's a repeat. It's Tony Finau. Uh, he's number 20 in the world rankings, coming off a fourth-place finish last week. He's played Torrey Pines six times in his career, and all six times he's finished inside the top 25, three of which uh, were inside the top six. So I think he's going to continue his hot play, and I think he's going to finish solidly inside the top 25. My second pick to click is Rory McIlroy. He's ranked number seven in the world. He finished uh, third place last week in Abu Dhabi. He, was, uh, he played uh, overseas last week and got a solo third. He's made two previous starts at Torrey Pines uh, last two years, 2019 and 2020. He finished uh, fifth place here in 2019 and third place here last year. And in six events since the Tour Championship at the FedEx Cup playoffs several months ago, he has not finished any worse than 21st. So he's playing good golf. He's had success at this course. I like for him to finish inside the top 25. Now my final pick to click is not as John Rahm. Not going to get cute with this. It's John Rahm. He is the number two ranked player in the world, which is the highest in the field. This is his fifth trip to the Farmers Insurance Open. Uh, he's This is the last four years he's played. He won this tournament in 2017, and since then he's gone 29th, 5th, and a second-place finish last year. And in his last 11 PGA events, dating back a few months ago, uh, around the FedEx Cup playoffs, he has seven top 10s out of 11 starts, including two wins and a second-place finish. So he was world number one at one point during that stretch, um, but has since been passed. But he's playing exceptional golf. He obviously has good success at Torrey Pines. So, of course, I like for him to finish inside that top 25 uh, range. But we'll move on to the National Football League. And we have made it to Super Bowl 55. Don't know how. Uh, with all the ups and downs, the no training camps or limited training camps, no off-season programs, positive COVID tests left and right, a season of uncertainty, we have made it to the end of the year. And I think that is a huge uh, testament to the National Football League and the way that they were able to use their protocols and uh, just... So grateful that they were able to do that because we all love football and uh, we were able to get a full season in. But we have a couple of big games to recap. And those, of course, are the NFC and AFC championship games that were played this past weekend. And we will start off in the NFC championship. 
That featured the number five seed Tampa Bay Buccaneers traveling to Lambeau Field to take on the top seeded Green Bay Packers. Now, I picked on last week's episode, I picked the Tampa Bay Buccaneers to win uh, just because of the Brady factor. And Tampa Bay won this game 31 to 26. But it was uh, it was interesting how they got there. So let's take an in-depth recap of, of how that game went down. The Buccaneers got the uh, opening kickoff. They took it nine plays and 66 yards. The drive was capped off by a 15-yard touchdown pass from Tom Brady to Mike Evans. Well, there were a couple of punts, and Green Bay's answer came three drives later when Aaron Rodgers threw a 50-yard bomb to Marquez Valdez-Scantling for the touchdown. Now, Valdez-Scantling, he led the NFL in the regular season in yards per catch uh, at about 28 yards per reception, which is just unreal. So he never really has a whole lot of catches, but he always seems to find the big one uh, in, in the most important times. So after that 50-yard touchdown strike, Tampa Bay got the ball, and they answered right back with a quick four-play, 73-yard drive that was capped off with an outstanding 20-yard touchdown run by Leonard Fournette. Now, if you watch the game or if you've seen a highlight of this run, Fournette gets the ball, and it's basically a run off guard. So he's going up the middle. Well, it was completely stuffed. He bounced this thing outside, took it to the sidelines, made a spin move. It was just unbelievable. And I saw a graphic that said next-gen stats. Uh, if you, you know, they basically keep um, crazy stat info. So next-gen stats gave Leonard Fournette a .04% chance to score on that play when he got the ball and he ended up scoring. So that tells you what an unbelievable run that was. So Tampa Bay scores to take the lead back. Well, then Green Bay puts a 15-play drive together, long drive, but they ended up having to settle for a 24-yard Mason Crosby field goal. So Tampa Bay gets the ball, but Green Bay forced a punt, and they got the ball back on their 13-yard line with Two minutes and 10 seconds left in the first half. So you're thinking, okay, Green Bay is going to take it down and and score, uh, maybe at least a field goal. Uh, Well, five plays and 20 yards later, Aaron Rodgers threw an interception and was picked off by Sean Murphy Bunting, which it was Sean Murphy Bunting's third interception this postseason. So he's been on a roll. He probably... Got away with a little holding penalty on Alan Lazard, the intended receiver on that throw. Uh, You could see a slight tug of the jersey, but nonetheless, it wasn't called. Uh, So Tampa Bay had the ball at their own 49-yard line with 25 seconds left in the first half. Uh, They ran a couple of plays, excellent clock management, uh, called a timeout, um, and then they had a fourth and four from the Green Bay 45-yard line. They ended up going for it and converting it on a six-yard pass to Leonard Fournette. So they have the ball at the 39-yard line with six seconds left. And they line up, shotgun form. Uh, You're probably thinking, okay, they're just going to get maybe five to ten quick yards, call a timeout, kick the field goal. 
Well, for whatever reason, Green Bay decides to play man coverage on the outside uh, of Scotty Miller, the wide receiver. He was covered by corner Kevin King. Well, Brady snaps the ball, and Miller just dusts King, uh, runs right by him. King whiffed at him. Brady plops it in Miller's arms for a 39-yard touchdown strike with one second left. Uh, Huge play in this game. Monumental, because that brought the halftime score to 21-10. Tampa was up by 11 going into the half. So the second half opens up, and Green Bay gets the ball to start. So again, you're thinking, good, if they score, it's you know a one-score game keeping it close. Well, Green Bay had a third and five from their own 30-yard line. Well, Aaron Rodgers completes a two-yard pass to Aaron Jones, who caught the ball and immediately turned upfield. Well, as soon as he turned, he was met by safety Jordan Whitehead, who just popped him, knocked the ball loose, and it was actually Whitehead's second forced fumble on Aaron Jones in this game. Well, Tampa Bay linebacker Devin White was right there, picked up the ball, and took it down to the Green Bay 8 before being tackled. And all Tampa Bay needed was one play, and Brady found Cameron Brake for the 8-yard touchdown. That put Tampa Bay up 28-10, to which uh, you had the feeling this was getting out of control uh, after this. And this that uh, Cameron Brake touchdown was Tampa Bay's 6th touchdown on their 7th forced turnover this postseason which is precisely why they uh, have three road wins. Uh, They convert turnovers into touchdowns, and when you do that, you will win more times than you lose. So on the next drive, uh, Green Bay has the ball. Jordan Whitehead, the safety, uh, he absolutely popped Jamal Williams and flipped him over, but he uh, hurt his shoulder and was ruled out for the game. And that was a huge play because he was a big part of that Buccaneers defense and that actually forced the Buccaneers to roll with two backup safeties in the game because uh, Antoine Winfield Jr. the other safety was out this game with an injury so with two backup safeties playing Green Bay took the ball down the field and scored Uh, Aaron Rodgers found Robert Tanyan for an eight-yard touchdown then on that next drive this is three drives in a row now you'll see a theme here for the Buccaneers but on this one Tom Brady threw a deep pass, and it was intended for Mike Evans. Uh, It was just a little short, kind of behind him, and Adrian Amos, the safety for the Packers, went up and got it, picked it off. So after that turnover, Green Bay put uh, another massive 13-play drive. Uh, It was helped by a penalty, but it ended in a two-yard passing touchdown from Aaron Rodgers to who else other than Devontae Adams. So the Packers went for two and didn't get it, but Rodgers threw a bullet to Equinemia St. Brown, and the pass hit him right in the chest and bounced off his chest. So they did not convert the two-point conversion. And this game, at this point, was 28-23. Tampa was in the lead by five. So Tampa has a huge kickoff return for 43 yards, uh, gave him the ball near midfield. Uh, They run six plays. And on that sixth play, Tom Brady threw another deep pass intended for Mike Evans. The ball hit Evans in the hands and bounced up. 
right into the waiting arms of Jair Alexander at the three-yard line. So Alexander catches it and takes off upfield uh, to the 19-yard line before getting tackled. Big play. Uh, Kept the Buccaneers uh, off the board. You get the ball, and uh, Green Bay has done nothing but convert turnovers. Uh, They've had 16 turnovers this year, and they have not gone three and out. At this point in the season, they had 16 uh, turnovers. They had not gone three and out on any of those drives following a turnover. Well, that changed on this drive because they went three and out. They could not do anything with the ball after the pick. So on the ensuing drive, uh, this is Tampa Bay's. The last two drives have resulted in a Brady interception that was intended for Evans. So this drive, they had a three-play drive, and that ended when Tom Brady threw an absolutely horrible, off-balance, deep pass intended for who? Mike Evans, and it was picked off by Jair Alexander for his second pick in as many drops. Third drive in a row, the Buccaneers threw an interception. But yet again, after going 16 of 16 uh, on, on drives of after turnovers of not going three and out, Green Bay again went three and out on this turnover. So that was two drives in a row that they went three and out after a turnover. Massive point in this game because it was still 28-23 at this point. Uh, definitely well within reach, and they couldn't capitalize on either of those drives. So then Brady gets the ball back and uh, puts together an eight-play drive uh, that ended with a 46-yard Ryan Suckup field goal to extend the Buccaneers' lead to eight points, 31-23 at this point. Well, Green Bay responds back with a good drive, uh, ended, ended in a 26-yard Mason Crosby field goal to bring the game back within five. Now, this was controversial because there was a little over two minutes left. It was 31-26 after the field goal was made. So Green Bay was still down by five. But the controversial part about this field goal was that Green Bay had the ball first and goal from the eight-yard line. And they ran three plays and did not gain any yards at all. So they had, uh, it was like two minutes and uh, eight seconds left, I believe. Uh, they had all three timeouts and the two-minute warning. So Matt LaFleur opted to kick the field goal and take the points instead of going for it fourth and goal from the eight-yard line. And uh, truthfully, on third down on that drive, Rodgers uh, started to look like he was going to take off and run, and it appeared that he probably had enough room to get in the end zone or pretty damn close. But he decided to just hold up and throw an incomplete pass to Devontae Adams at the goal line couple of weird decisions there but so the field goal was kicked uh green bay had all three timeouts they kicked the ball off tampa bay gets the ball um they actually the packers actually hold the buccaneers on third down but they got a huge defensive pass interference penalty called on them uh Tyler Johnson, the Buccaneers receiver, was cutting across the field, and he had his jersey pulled to where you could see it stretching. Uh, really not uh, not really a debatable call. It was definitely a hold, but that was on third down uh, after an incomplete pass. So instead of getting the ball back, the Packers uh, gave the Buccaneers a new set of downs. 
and that effectively ended the game. Now, after the game, uh, that I mean, that did end the game because the Buccaneers ran the clock out, and they won 31-26. But after the game, the Packers head coach, Matt LaFleur, came out and said that, he's you know, you're always going to second-guess play calls uh, and that he should have, you know, maybe gone for it instead of kicked it. But he did point out that Green Bay had not gained any yards on three attempts from the eight-yard line. And he said they effectively had four timeouts with the two-minute warning. So uh, he just felt confident and his defense was going to get a stop, which they almost did, minus the penalty. Uh, but I guess he forgot who was playing quarterback for the other team because that guy is the most clutch playoff quarterback the league has ever seen in Tom Brady. But speaking of Brady, he threw – I told you he threw the interception uh, on three consecutive drives and – two of which did not result in any points. And I think that was the difference more so uh, than Matt LaFleur's decision. Green Bay's failure to capitalize on those back-to-back picks, uh, uh, three of them, they did convert on the first interception, but the last two picks, they didn't. They went three and out. So uh, I think that was more of a factor than LaFleur's decision uh, because if you score there on either of those drives, LaFleur's decision on that, fourth and goal is is much easier but Tampa Bay's defense was the real story of the game they had five sacks five tackles for a loss one interception and one forced fumble slash fumble recovery and they also stymied Rodgers in the red zone uh, late with that big stop now Tampa Bay's defense uh, has really put it all together here in the playoffs and they are more of the reason that the Buccaneers are headed to the Super Bowl than the play of Tom Brady, which has been average at best. Uh, he's not been bad. He's not been great. He's just kind of been average. But uh, some some leaders on each team's stats, Tom Brady was 20 of 36 for 280 yards, three touchdowns, and three interceptions. Leonard Fournette had 12 carries for 55 yards and a touchdown. Chris Godwin had five catches for 110 yards. Mike Evans, three catches on eight targets. Not a great catch percentage for 51 yards and a touchdown. And he should have had a lot more if he wouldn't have dropped the ball. Uh, he had at least two or three big drops. On the other side for the Packers, Aaron Rodgers, 33 of 48 for 346 yards passing, three touchdowns and a pick. Green Bay only had 67 rushing yards, so their running backs were a complete non-factor. Aaron Jones had actually got hurt on that hit from Whitehead that forced the fumble, so he was out. Probably a big reason as to why they didn't have more than 70 rushing yards. Uh, Marquez Valdez-Scantling, four catches for 115 yards and a touchdown. Again, just that catch average is is huge. Devontae Adams had 15 targets in this game. He caught nine of them, 67 yards and a touchdown, and he definitely should have had uh, at least another touchdown and several more catches with with a couple of the targets that he had. But a quick side note here, uh, Aaron Rodgers, Drew Brees, and Tom Brady all have won one NFC Championship game in their careers. Rodgers and Brees have combined for 35 years in the NFC, while Tom Brady has only played one year in the NFC. It's just absolutely insane to think about. Uh, Aaron Rodgers, though, he falls to 1-4 in in NFC title games, uh, 
and he's lost the last four. He won the very first one in 2010, went to the Super Bowl, has been in four NFC title games since, and has lost all four. It's That is just very shocking. With how good of a quarterback Aaron Rodgers is and with how good some of these Packer teams that they've had, I uh, can't believe that they are 1-4 in, uh, in NFC Championship games with Rodgers as their quarterback. But such is the case. But we'll move on to the AFC Championship game. And that featured the number two-seeded Buffalo Bills traveling to Arrowhead Stadium to take on the top-seeded Kansas City Chiefs. Now, I picked Kansas City to win the game. And Kansas City did win the game 38-24. to uh, but we'll take a look at how we got there because this was a matchup of the best two teams in the AFC. And coming into the game, everybody thought that the Bills were probably the only team that could give the Chiefs a run for their money and possibly beat them. Josh Allen's been in the MVP conversation all season, and he did nothing but back it up here in the playoffs thus far. Um, and even really in this game, too, to a certain extent. But Buffalo got the ball to start the game, come out on the opening drive, and put a pretty solid drive together. They converted a fourth and one in Kansas City territory on that opening drive, and Josh Allen actually threw a pass that was intercepted by Juan Thornhill, but Thornhill uh, had the ball come out of his hands as he hit the ground, so they ruled it incomplete, uh, but it was definitely would have been an interception had he held on, and that was a gift because that allowed the Bills to kick a 51-yard field goal and uh, jump out to a 3-0 lead. So Kansas City actually was forced to punt on their opening drive uh, after Tyreek Hill dropped a pass on third and four. It was uh, probably about a 30-yard pass or so, and it hit Hill right in the hands, but Hill dropped it, so that made it fourth down. Uh, Kansas City had to punt. So Buffalo gets the ball, and Kansas City's defense actually forces a punt there after a couple of big runs by Allen. Uh, Allen had a couple of uh, longer runs, longer two runs of, of the day, but uh, they stalled out and they had to punt. So Mecole Hardman was back deep for the Chiefs to return the punt, and he caught the ball inside the 10-yard line and tried to take off. Now, the only issue is that he forgot the ball because it hit off his hands and it actually rolled back towards the goal line. So the Bills jump on it and recover the muff punt at the three-yard line. Just an absolute horrible blunder by Hardman. The Bills only needed one play to cash in. It was a three-yard touchdown pass from Josh Allen to Dawson Knox. Now Tyler Bass, the kicker, missed the extra point on this touchdown, so the Bills led 9 to nothing. Now, ordinarily, you would be concerned if your team was down 9 to nothing after the first few drives uh, in a big championship game. But the Kansas City Chiefs, uh, they fear nobody. And their offense is the best in the league, and they can do what they want when they want. So uh, I still had complete confidence that the Chiefs were going to win this game, even though they were down early. So Kansas City follows up that uh, drive, uh, that blunder, by going 14 plays and 80 yards. They also converted a fourth and one. Drive ended with a three-yard touchdown pass from Patrick Mahomes to Mecole Hardman. 
in the same end zone and basically from the same spot on the field where he muffed the punt. So kind of an interesting fact there. Um, Buffalo got the ball, so it's 9-7 at this point. Buffalo gets the ball. Kansas City's defense forces a punt. And on that drive, Kansas City uh, took the ball right down the field. They had a huge reverse play in which Mecole Hardman took it for 50 yards up the left sideline. Uh, Daryl Williams capped it off with a six-yard touchdown run. Just a very efficient, quick drive uh, for the Chiefs. Mecole Hardman uh, made amends for his fumble. He had the touchdown and then the 50-yard reverse play. So Kansas City takes the lead. Buffalo gets the ball and can't do anything with it. Kansas City forced uh, another Buffalo punt. They actually almost had an interception. Charvarius Ward had the ball hit off of his hands as he went up for it, uh, but he couldn't come down with it. It would have been a great interception, but the Chiefs still forced the punt. So Bills punted away. Chiefs get the ball, and on that drive, Kansas City goes 77 yards on nine plays, one of which was a 33-yard pass from Mahomes to Tyreek Hill. And that drive was capped off with a one-yard touchdown run from Clyde Edwards-Elair, in which he was untouched from the one-yard line, ran it in the end zone, and nobody was near him. So Buffalo's next drive, they're getting in trouble here. Uh, Kansas City is scoring at will at this point, and Buffalo is having to punt, uh, it seems, on every drive. So on, on their next drive, Buffalo, they ended the first half with a big 12-play drive, but they just could not get in the end zone. They had to settle for a 20-yard field goal. So the score at halftime was 21-12. to Kansas City was up. And Kansas City was actually held scoreless in the first quarter, and they scored all 21 points unanswered in the second quarter uh, before Buffalo got that field goal to end the half. So Kansas City gets the ball to start the second half, and they put together a 10-play drive that ends up in a 45-yard Harrison Butker field goal. And by this time, you pretty much had the feeling that Kansas City was in control. Uh, It was 24-12 at this point. Uh, Buffalo was still in the game, but Buffalo was settling for field goals instead of touchdowns, and you cannot do that against the Chiefs. That is a recipe for a loss. Now, speaking of settling for a field goal, Buffalo's very next drive, first one of the second half, resulted in a 27-yard field goal. And on this drive, Josh Allen got hit awkwardly, kind of was slow to get up, And uh, I'm sure Bills fans were probably having a panic attack, but he did get up. He got remained in the game and uh, said Josh Allen's tough because he watches a lot of Buffalo Sabres hockey. We'll go with that. But uh, Kansas City gets the ball back, and they take it all the way down the field on a quick drive. Mahomes found Tyreek Hill for a 71-yard pass. That set the Chiefs up. Drive ended in that. Patented one-yard shovel pass from Holmes, Mahomes to Kelsey where they just he just kind of flips it to him. And this game was blown wide open at this point. It was 31-15 Kansas City. And after this, you, you knew it was uh, Buffalo was, was not going to win. Uh, Buffalo's next drive was another monster drive. 12 plays again. And uh, from 
the Kansas City 20-yard line. Josh Allen threw an interception to Rashad Fenton, who returned it 30 yards to the Chiefs' 42-yard line. So uh, Buffalo was in the red zone, and then Allen threw an interception that was basically brought up to midfield. And what Kansas City do with that turnover? Well, they cashed it in for a touchdown because Mahomes hit Travis Kelsey again for a five-yard touchdown pass. And this put the Chiefs up 38-15. to And you knew this game was over. That was the nail in the coffin for the Bills. Uh, however, they did respond after that. Uh, the Bills took it down the field, 10 plays, capped off by a six-yard touchdown pass from Allen to Isaiah McKenzie. They attempted the two-point conversion and didn't get it. So at this point, it's 38-21. Buffalo did get the onside kick, though. They tried an onside kick and got it, which actually gave them the ball. And uh, this drive ended. uh, They had obviously a short field with the onside kick, but they couldn't do anything with it. Allen took a big sack on third and 10, uh, and then there was some drama. Uh, After he was sacked, Josh Allen uh, was getting up from the ground, and he pretty much kind of lightly just tossed the football at the head of uh, Chiefs defensive end Alex Okafor. And there was some shoving and some pushing going on, and the refs had to step in. After all that, though, the Bills would hit the 51-yard field goal, so it was 38-24. But it was obviously too little, too late. The Chiefs got the ball back, and they just ran the clock out. So your final was Kansas City 38 Buffalo 24. So Patrick Mahomes in this game was 29 of 38 for 325 yards and three touchdowns. And on play action plays in this game, Mahomes was ridiculous. He was 14 of 14 for 208 yards and two touchdowns. So Buffalo could not handle the play action with Mahomes. Uh, Running back Darrell Williams, 13 carries, 52 yards and a touchdown. And now those weapons on the outside, Tyreek Hill and Travis Kelsey. They became the first pair of teammates to go over 100 yards receiving in a playoff game. Tyreek Hill had nine catches for 172 yards. Travis Kelsey, 13 catches, 118 yards, and two touchdowns, which is insane. Those two are uh, unstoppable. Now, Josh Allen, on the other side, went 28 of 48 for 287 yards passing, two touchdowns, and an interception. Josh Allen also added seven carries for 88 yards to lead the Buffalo rushing attack. Um, The unstoppable combination, like I was talking about these last few weeks between Josh Allen and Stephon Diggs, they came back down to earth a little bit in this one. Uh, Stephon Diggs had six catches on 11 targets for only 77 yards, uh, which, which is not horrible. Um, but it's not like they have been doing. And uh, Allen did look for digs deep a couple times, uh, but they fell incomplete. And Cole Beasley actually led Buffalo receivers with 88 yards on seven catches. And then after the game, it was found out that he had been playing uh, with a broken fibula the last couple weeks. Uh, Just tough dude, man. Again, watching that Sabres hockey. Uh, But if... So with those two playoff games, I actually got both of my predictions right uh, for the conference championship. So if you're keeping score at home, I went 2-0 in the conference championship game picks this week, 
to bring my overall playoff pick'em record to nine and three. So that's that's pretty good there. So that brings us to Super Bowl Fifty Five, which is set to be played Sunday, February seventh, at Raymond James Stadium in Tampa, Florida. The game features the NFC champion Tampa Bay Buccaneers versus the AFC champion Kansas City Chiefs. It's the GOAT, Tom Brady, versus the quarterback with the greatest start to his career of all time, and that's Patrick Mahomes. Mahomes is a ridiculous 25-1 in his last 26 starts. And in his three years as a starting quarterback in the NFL, Mahomes has already won a league MVP, a Super Bowl, and a Super Bowl MVP. Now, how's this one? Patrick Mahomes has not lost a game that he started by more than one score since November 19, 2016, when he was the quarterback of the Texas Tech Red Raiders, in which they lost that game to Iowa State 66-10. And if there is ever a quarterback that can attain Tom Brady's ridiculous success in the NFL in terms of Super Bowl appearances and Super Bowl rings at some point, that quarterback is Patrick Mahomes. This is Tom Brady's 10th Super Bowl appearance, which is just downright absurd. Tom Brady's record in the big game in his career is 6-3. and three. And on the other side, Patrick Mahomes has only made one Super Bowl appearance, which was last year, and of course, he won that game. But Tom Brady and Patrick Mahomes have squared off head-to-head four times in their careers so far. Both guys have won twice, and both guys have lost twice against each other. And all four of those games have been won by seven points or less. And the total number of points in those games, Kansas City, 121, and Tampa Bay, or the Tom Brady-led teams, 120. One-point difference. These two teams actually met back in Week 12 of this season in Tampa Bay, and Kansas City won that game 27-24 to in just an absolute barn burner. But in that game, Tampa Bay allowed a season-high 543 yards of total offense to Kansas City. This game marks the 14th time in Super Bowl history that the two teams playing in the Super Bowl played against each other during the regular season that year. But the good news for the Buccaneers fans is that the team that lost the regular season game is 7-6 and six in those Super Bowls. So let's take a look at how each team got to where they are. Tampa Bay Buccaneers, they finished the regular season with a record of 11-5. and five. They finished second place in the NFC South and were the fifth seed in the NFC entering the playoffs. Their first playoff game was on the road in Washington against the Washington football team in the wild card round, and they won that game 31-23. The next round, the divisional round, they traveled to New Orleans to play the Saints, and they won that game 30-20. Last weekend, of course, we talked about that, They traveled up to Lambeau Field for their third consecutive road playoff game, and they beat the Green Bay Packers 31-26 to win the NFC. Tampa Bay is the fifth team in NFL history to make the Super Bowl after winning 
three road playoff games. Now, the two most recent teams that come to mind that did that same thing are the 2010 Green Bay Packers and the uh, 2007 New York Giants, uh, both of whom won the Super Bowl that year. Now, on the other side, the Kansas City Chiefs. They finished the regular season with a record of 14-2. They were first place in the AFC West, and they finished as the top overall seed in the AFC entering the playoffs. Kansas City did not play in the wild card round because they were the top overall seed and had a bye week. But in the divisional round, they beat the Cleveland Browns 22-17. And of course, last weekend in the AFC Championship game, they beat the Buffalo Bills 38-24. Kansas City is looking to become the first team to win back-to-back Super Bowls since the 2003-2004 New England Patriots, who had some chump named Tom Brady at quarterback. Now, it was already announced that the Kansas City Chiefs will be wearing their red jerseys in the Super Bowl, just like they did last year, and that the Tampa Bay Buccaneers will be wearing their white jerseys with pewter pants. Tom Brady is 4-1 in his career in Super Bowls in which he's worn a white jersey. The halftime show for the Super Bowl is none other than my man, The Weeknd. Uh favorite singer. Uh, he, his song obviously opens my show here on the podcast. Uh, I've seen him in concert several times and he actually sounds better in person than he does on his albums. Uh, so it's going to be a great halftime show. Certainly looking forward to that. But in a COVID filled season full of firsts, uh, how fitting is it that we end the season uh, with another first? And that's of course the first time in Super Bowl history that a team that's playing in the Super Bowl is playing in their home stadium. Now, there are several other firsts regarding Super Bowl 55 as well, and that's limited attendance. The NFL announced that the Super Bowl this year is going to host a total of 22,000 fans, uh, 7,500 of which are going to be vaccinated healthcare workers who are being given free tickets to attend the game. Now, all 75 100 healthcare workers will have received uh, both doses of their vaccine before they attend, and a majority of those healthcare workers are coming from hospitals and healthcare systems in the Tampa St. St. Pete area of Florida, in Central Florida. But there are going to be representatives, uh, healthcare workers from communities uh, around all 32 NFL teams that get tickets. So Pretty cool little event that the NFL's doing there to um, reward the healthcare workers that have uh, continued to work throughout this pandemic, uh, regardless of any circumstances that have come up. Now, another first for the Super Bowl this year uh, involves uh, Super Bowl travel and uh, media day. Now, of course, Tampa Bay are playing in their home stadium, so the Buccaneers are already at home. They get to practice in their own facility. Uh, and sleep in their own beds. So that's an oddity that, of course, we've never seen. So with regards to the Kansas City Chiefs, though, um, the NFL is not allowing teams to arrive in Tampa Bay any earlier than the Friday of Super Bowl week. So per reports that I've seen so far come out, the Chiefs are not expected to arrive in Tampa Bay until either Friday or Saturday, the day before the Super Bowl. 
But with regards to Media Day, that traditionally takes place on the Monday of Super Bowl week. And, of course, that's nothing but interviews and uh, media contacting the players. Well, this year, that's going to be done virtually, of course, just as every, uh, it seems as every uh, post-game interview or whatever has, there's been a lot of virtual meetings amongst the teams and interviews that have taken place over Zoom or however they do that. Uh, But that's how it's going to be uh, Super Bowl week this year, uh, virtual media day. Now, lastly, the other first, uh, the Super Bowl winning team, they uh, they obviously stick around that city and uh, all night long, and they just party like rock stars uh, because they, of course, win the Super Bowl. So why not? Live it up. But those plans this year are still in the works. Now, Tampa Bay is at home, so that's obviously different. But Kansas City uh, is going to have the option uh, of immediately flying home if they win and conducting a party in their hometown. Kansas City. I'm not sure how that would affect the MVP's plans to go to Disney World the next morning, as they usually do, because Disney World is in Orlando, Florida, which is right up the road from Tampa Bay. So I would assume if Kansas City wins this year, I think they're probably going to stay in Tampa and just party that night, especially with Mahomes and Kelsey and the rest of that crew. If you saw the party they threw last year, Oh boy, yeah, those guys aren't going anywhere. They, they're going to be staying in Tampa Bay that night. But uh, my prediction for the Super Bowl, um, you, you got Tom Brady versus Patrick Mahomes. Uh, great matchup of quarterbacks. I like the Buccaneers because of the Tom Brady factor. Um, you know, I picked them to, to win last week, and they did. And Tom Brady's 10th Super Bowl. Uh, he's won six out of nine so far in his career. It's really hard to bet against that. Uh, I just, with the offensive weapons that they have, their defense has really kind of carried them through this playoffs, forcing turnovers, creating sacks, tackles for loss, just big plays all around by the defense. But they have not seen an offense like Kansas City. And it just seems as if Kansas City cannot be stopped with the weapons that they have right now. They have speed you can see all over the field. Uh, Their defense isn't great. It's probably not as good as Tampa's. But their offense is better than Tampa's. And I like the Chiefs to score more points than the Buccaneers. They already beat them once this year in Tampa Bay. And I think they're going to make that twice. I am picking the Kansas City Chiefs to win the Super Bowl. I think it'll be a good game. Um, Maybe closer, uh, maybe not as close as as the first game was, but uh, once Mahomes and the boys get rolling, I just don't see a way that they're going to be stopped. So I am taking the Kansas City Chiefs to win the Super Bowl. But we'll move over to the National Basketball Association, and we'll do our weekly standings update. There have been some changes because there's been a few teams that have put together some good win streaks here and we'll start off in the eastern conference the philadelphia 76ers are currently the top seed in the east with a record of 13 and 6 and their record at home is 10 and 1 which is just absurd that's fantastic that's what you want to do at home second seed currently the milwaukee bucks at 11 and 6 indiana pacers 11 and 7 
The Brooklyn Nets, after their acquisition of James Harden and the return of Kyrie Irving, they're up to 12-8. and eight. They've won three in a row, and uh, they look pretty formidable with that trio that they got rolling uh, every night. Uh, fifth seed currently, the Boston Celtics at 10-7. and seven. Cleveland Cavaliers, uh, they're 9-9. Nine and nine. The Atlanta Hawks, they're 9-9, nine and nine, and they're a good young team, man, and they can put some points on the board. Uh, the eighth seed currently is still the New York Knicks. They are hanging around. They're 8-11, uh, tied with the Orlando Magic at 8-11 as well. But uh, in the Western Conference, big movement here in the Western Conference, uh, the Utah Jazz have decided to go on a 10-game winning streak, move themselves into first place in the Western Conference currently with a record of 14-4. and uh, they're seven and two, both at home and on the road. So pretty consistent play across the board. The Los Angeles Lakers are currently number two with a record of fourteen and five. Their road record is ten and one. So they've done nothing but win away from the Staples Center. Third seed currently is the Los Angeles Clippers with a record of thirteen and five. Now the Denver Nuggets. Last week they were on the bubble. Uh, you know, as far as an 8-9 eight, eight, seed. But they decided to string five wins together. They've bumped up to number four in there with a record of 11-7. and seven. Portland Trailblazers coming in next at 9-7. and seven. The 6-7 and seven seed both have a record of 10-8. and eight. And currently the sixth seed is the Golden State Warriors. And the San Antonio Spurs would be number seven. They both won two in a row. Uh, both look pretty good. You know, Golden State lost Clay Thompson in the offseason to another substantial injury, but the addition of James Wiseman, the second overall pick in the draft, he's just really been a game changer for that offense. Now, the eighth seed in the West currently is the Memphis Grizzlies. They are 7-6, and six, and that includes another five-game winning streak that we see here. So uh, Memphis is playing some good basketball. Um, Phoenix Suns are 8-8. Eight and eight. Oklahoma City Thunder, 8-9, and nine, and my Dallas Mavericks are still spinning their wheels, stuck in neutral. Lost three in a row. That brings them down to 8-10. and ten. So basketball's rocking and rolling. Uh, it's interesting uh, to follow that and see how the season progresses. Uh, there's been some COVID tests that have come up, but NBA's uh, managed that. Uh, but we'll move over to the National Hockey League. And we'll do a weekly standings update for the NHL. Uh, As last week's episode, there was only one team that had not played a game in the regular season at this point, and that was my Dallas Stars. They were still, uh, they had delayed the start of their season due to a COVID outbreak that occurred in training camp. And they have gotten off to a fantastic start. They played three games this week. They got another one tonight. And they are 3-0, including a 7-0 demolition of the Nashville Predators in their season opener. But we'll get to the standings here. The Scotia North Division. We'll just do the the top four teams in each division because that's who uh, makes the playoffs, top four from each division. In the Scotia North Division, the Toronto Maple Leafs are in first with a record of 6-2. The Montreal Canadiens are 4-0-2, Winnipeg Jets 5-2, Vancouver Canucks 4-5, and 
Edmonton is three and five. Calgary's two, two and one, and Ottawa is one, five and one. I just read the whole division. We'll just do that, just so you know where everybody's at. In the Honda West division, Vegas Golden Knights five, one and one. St. Louis Blues four, two and one. Colorado Avalanche four and three. Los Angeles Kings three, two and two. Anaheim Ducks three, two and two. Minnesota Wild four and three. San Jose Sharks three and four. Arizona Coyotes two, four and one. In the Mass Mutual East Division, Washington Capitals four, zero and three. Boston Bruins four, one and one. Philadelphia Flyers four, two and one. Pittsburgh Penguins four, two and one. New Jersey Devils three, two and one. Buffalo Sabers three, three and one. New York Islanders three and three, and holding up the rear, the New York Rangers one four and one. In the Discover Central Division, the Nashville Predators are four and three. Columbus Blue Jackets are two two and three. Chicago Blackhawks two three and three. Dallas Stars three and zero. Florida Panthers three and zero. Tampa Bay Lightning three and one. Detroit Red Wings, 2-4-1. The Carolina Hurricanes, 2-1. They had a little COVID issue, so that's why they've only played three games like Dallas and Florida. But we're still so early in the NHL season. It's only 56 games this year, but uh, we're still so early that um, everybody's super close in points and nobody's really out of the playoffs at this particular moment. But there was some big news that happened in the NHL this week, and that was that comes to us via the method of a blockbuster trade that went down, and that involved the Winnipeg Jets and the Columbus Blue Jackets. The Winnipeg Jets got center Pierre-Luc Dubois and a 2022 third-round pick from the Columbus Blue Jackets in exchange for left-winger Patrick Laine and defenseman Jack Roslovic. Now, Winnipeg also retained 26% of Patrick Laine's salary. So the interesting thing about this trade is that Patrick Laine was the second overall pick in the 2016 NHL draft, and Pierre-Luc Dubois was the third overall pick in that draft. And they were just traded for one another. So this means that basically the Winnipeg Jets, they could have drafted... Pierre-Luc Dubois at number two, but they passed on him to take Patrick Laine, and then they've traded him now some three or four years later. But this uh, this deal was interesting because Patrick Laine wasn't exactly happy in Winnipeg, and Jack Roslovic uh, was holding out for a new contract from the Jets. So he, he hadn't even reported to the team so far this year. He was waiting for a new contract. So you have two disgruntled guys uh, on one side, and then on the other side, Pierre-Luc Dubois, uh, he got benched by Coach John Tortorella the other night for lack of effort, and he's already demanded a trade from Columbus. So you have basically a trade full of guys that are disgruntled with their teams. So Jack Roslovic, in fact, is actually from Columbus. So he hasn't even made it to Winnipeg this year. He's been in Columbus the whole time. Now, I think both teams won this deal because they each got rid of guys who didn't want to be a part of their teams. 
So it's, it's a win-win for everybody involved. But if I had to pick a winner in this trade, I'd say that the Columbus Blue Jackets are the winner. Because I think Patrick Laine is better than Pierre-Luc Dubois since he's a threat to score 40-plus goals every year in a regular season. And Jack Roslovic is a solid defenseman who can contribute right away. And since the trade went down, Jack Roslovic actually signed a two-year contract extension uh, with the Columbus Blue Jackets with an average annual value of $1.9 million. So again, everybody's a winner. Roslovic gets to play in his hometown, and both teams are happy. And the funny thing is, is after this trade, Columbus won their very first game. Uh, Dubois didn't play, but after getting rid of him and uh, his the negative attitude that he had with Columbus, uh, they ended up winning their first game after the trade. But that'll bring us to our segment called Around the Island. And that, of course, is where we do some quick hit topics from around the various sports. And we'll start off in Major League Baseball. Some sad news to report out of the MLB this past week. All-time legend Hank Aaron passed away last Friday morning at the age of 86. Um, Hank Aaron played 23 seasons in the MLB. He won the 1957 NL MVP and the World Series that year. He's second all-time in home runs with 755. He led Major League Baseball in home runs for 32 years until Barry Bonds broke the record back in 2007. And Hank Aaron's also the all-time leader in RBIs with 2,297 and total bases with 6,856. He was also a two-time batting champion and three-time Gold Glove Award winner. And he's the only player in Major League Baseball history to appear in 25 All-Star games. I mean, that's that's not going to be beat. Uh, but most importantly, he played during the era of extreme racism. And he faced many difficulties because of his color. But he still managed to be one of the very best players the game has ever seen. Just an absolute legend. So rip Hank Aaron. And speaking of the Hall of Fame... Uh, the Baseball Hall of Fame class of 2021 came up empty. For only the fifth time in history, nobody was selected to the Baseball Hall of Fame this year. And players need 75% of the vote to get in. And some of the main players that have been uh, vying to get in these last few years since their eligibility is coming down to an end is Kurt Schilling, Barry Bonds, and Roger Clemens. Now, all of those three were involved. Of course, they played in the steroid era in baseball, and there's been a great debate amongst why all three should or should not get in to the Hall of Fame. Well, the voting was released, and Kurt Schilling got 71.1% this year, Barry Bonds got 61.8%, and Roger Clemens got 61.6%. So it's clear that the baseball writers of America who vote on that uh, are not a fan of the steroid era players, which that's complete crap because all three of those guys deserve to be in the Hall of Fame based on what they did for the game of baseball and their numbers when they played. And Kurt Schilling has had enough of it. He actually tried to get his name removed from the baseball writer's ballot to where he's not even eligible to be voted on, but 
uh, I read something that said that that's actually a violation and that can't take place. But it's it's total crap that those three aren't in there, and uh, hopefully they get in. Uh, I think next year might be their last year of eligibility, but uh, hopefully they'll get in because they definitely deserve to. But some other news out of Major League Baseball. Uh, Cactus League officials have asked Major League Baseball to delay the start of spring training in Arizona due to the high number of COVID cases in the Phoenix area. So, of course, you have the Cactus League and the Grapefruit League, which is the two spring training leagues in baseball. Uh, Cactus League is in Arizona. And uh, I guess I guess Phoenix is getting hit hard with COVID right now, and uh, they don't assume it's going to be any better uh, in about a month or so whenever spring training gets started. But uh, that'll be interesting to keep an eye on there because if spring training is delayed, your only options at that point are either to shorten the preseason and spring training or postpone the season and move it back uh, however long spring training is delayed. Now, some other news. Major League Baseball Players Association, they turned down the latest proposal from Major League Baseball for the universal designated hitter rule and the expanded playoff format. Now, we saw both of those in action this year in the shortened season where we did not have pitchers hitting in the National League. Uh, Everybody had a DH in every game. And then the expanded playoff format where we added a couple of teams to the playoffs. I personally am a fan of both of those, and I think that both of those uh, rules should be in effect permanently because that worked out really well. Uh, Who doesn't want more playoff teams? And frankly, who likes watching pitchers hit? Uh, So uh, I'm definitely bummed that that got denied. Hopefully they'll keep working on that and maybe come to a resolution. But we got a couple of trades to discuss. Uh, Not real huge trades, but uh, definitely of note. The New York Yankees acquired starting pitcher Jamison Talon from the Pittsburgh Pirates for four prospects. And Talon was the uh, second overall pick in the 2010 draft. And he played with Yankees pitcher Garrett Cole on the Pittsburgh Pirates. They were actually roommates together when they played for Pittsburgh. So this trade reunites him with Garrett Cole. And the other noteworthy trade that went down involved the Toronto Blue Jays and the New York Mets. The Blue Jays acquired starting pitcher Steven Matz from the Mets in exchange for three prospects. Now, Matz is not really a great pitcher. He's probably more along the lines of an average pitcher, but he just adds more depth to the Blue Jays' rotation. He'll probably be a a number three or four starter for the Blue Jays this year, Uh, and more to come on the Blue Jays here in just a second. Uh, Some free agent signings to get into here. The Blue Jays, they signed relief pitcher Tyler Chatwood. Uh, so he's he's going to from the uh, Angels he played on, Los Angeles Angels going to Toronto. Uh, catcher James McCann signed a four-year, $40 million contract with the New York Mets, who, again, uh, continue to make moves and get better. Uh, shortstop Andrelton Simmons signed a one-year, $10.5 million contract with the Minnesota Twins. Uh, as you remember, they got Jay Happ last year. Last week, uh, signed him, pitcher, so Twins are making moves. Uh, Now the Blue Jays again. They signed infielder Marcus Simeon to a one-year $18 million deal. That's a great signing for the Blue Jays. They already have a young, outstanding infield, but you throw Simeon in there who can play any position in the infield, uh, and that's just great depth that they have, and uh, he fits in an already solid lineup. So the Blue Jays... 
are looking better and better, it seems, each day. Now, the biggest free agent was catcher JT Real Muto. He was on the Philadelphia Phillies last year, and there was talk that he would hit the open market, but Philly came calling with a five-year, $115.5 million deal, so Real Muto said, you know what, I think I'm going to stay put, which is uh, good for the Phillies because Real Muto is the best catcher in baseball, and with what the New York Mets and the Washington Nationals have been doing this offseason, making moves and getting better, and then you factor in the Atlanta Braves who won the division this past year and aren't going anywhere with their young talent, uh, the Phillies had to do something to keep pace in that National League East that I think may end up being the best division in baseball this year. A couple other infielders, shortstop Freddie Galvis signed a one-year deal with the Baltimore Orioles, and second baseman Tommy LaStella signed a one-year deal with the San Francisco Giants. But we'll circle back to the National Football League for a moment. The Detroit Lions and Matthew Stafford have agreed to mutually part ways this offseason, and the Lions are uh, actively trying to trade Stafford. They've already begun taking phone calls for trades on him, and uh, I saw Matthew Stafford listed his house uh, in Michigan for sale, so he is on the way out. Now, there's uh, some prop bets that have gone up as to the favorites to land Matthew Stafford. Uh, the favorite at the moment, the betting favorite, is the Indianapolis Colts, and I would agree with that. They're losing Phillip Rivers. Uh, they don't really have a viable option to replace him. Uh, they have a good team with weapons, uh, young players that they can uh, use in that offense for Stafford to have, and I think the Colts just make the most sense, but uh, there's definitely some other teams that are going to be calling the Lions to figure something out. Other news in the NFL, Seattle Seahawks tight end Greg Olson announced his retirement from the NFL. Greg Olson played 14 seasons with the Chicago Bears, the Carolina Panthers, and the Seattle Seahawks. And over the course of his career, he had 742 catches for 8,683 yards, which is actually fifth all-time among tight ends, and 60 touchdown catches, which is eighth all-time among tight ends. And he's going to be starting his career, uh, his new career, in the Fox broadcast booth. So look for him. Uh, on Sundays during the NFL season on Fox. I think Olsen's numbers probably would indicate that he will get into the Hall of Fame at some point. But one person who for sure is getting into the Hall of Fame is longtime Dallas Cowboys tight end Jason Witten. He also announced the other day that he is retiring from football this year. He can't make it official until March because that's when his contract with the Las Vegas Raiders uh, ends. But he has a 17-year career 16 years with Dallas, one with Las Vegas, and a year in between in the broadcast booth on ESPN's Monday Night Football. Now, the Houston Texans, they have hired Baltimore Ravens assistant coach David Culley to be their head coach, which makes him the very last coaching vacancy to be filled. David Culley is 65 years old, and he's coached in the NFL for 27 years, which is a very long time. Most recently, these past few years, Cully was the Baltimore Ravens passing game coordinator and wide receivers coach, which is fine and dandy until you realize that the Ravens finished the 2020 season ranked dead last in passing. 
That's exactly what Houston needs at the moment. They have a quarterback that wants out. They have no weapons and no draft picks. So they hire a coach whose passing offense was ranked last in the league. That makes sense. And speaking of the Texans, yes, Deshaun Watson has officially requested a trade out of Houston. I guess the request was made a couple of weeks ago, but they just finally made that public. He has a list of preferred teams he wants to go to. Uh, the top teams that he that Watson wants to go to would be the New York Jets, Miami Dolphins, and Carolina Panthers. Now, there was an article I saw on ESPN+. Plus. If you are subscribed to that, I would highly recommend you check it out. It's from Bill Barnwell. He's an NFL writer for ESPN. And this article, it ranks all 32 teams in the NFL from 32 down to 1 as the most likely trade options for Deshaun Watson. And he also actually predicts a trade for Watson for each team. So it's, it's actually very fascinating uh, to watch or to, to read if you're, if you're into this Deshaun Watson info. But some disturbing news out of the NFL. Seattle Seahawks offensive lineman Chad Wheeler was arrested this past week for assaulting his girlfriend and choking her to the point of unconsciousness. Now, Wheeler has already bonded out of jail, but it appears highly doubtful that he'll ever play in the NFL again. I would assume his career is over. But this weekend, we get to look forward to the 2021 Pro Bowl. Since we got a a week by for the uh, Super Bowl, the 2021 Pro Bowl is always the week before the Super Bowl. And before COVID, uh, the Pro Bowl was scheduled to be played at Allegiant Stadium in Las Vegas, Nevada. But obviously this year, they decided to nix it. And just like every other thing this year, go virtual with it. Well, how the hell do you go virtual with the Pro Bowl? Well, what you do is you still select your Pro Bowl rosters like normal, and that still counts towards a player's uh, career Pro Bowl selections. But you play the Pro Bowl on Madden. Why not? Let's play it on a video game. So who's going to do that? Well, they selected four people to represent each conference. Uh, The AFC's representation would be Deshaun Watson, Derrick Henry, Snoop Dogg, and Keyshawn Johnson. And in the NFC... Representatives are Kyler Murray, Jamal Adams, Marshawn Lynch, and NASCAR driver Bubba Wallace. So what they're going to do, the head-to-head matchups are still to be determined, but each of those guys will play one guy from the other team while at their house uh, using the official Pro Bowl rosters. They'll play one game of Madden, so everybody, they basically take turns rotating quarters. Each player is going to play one five-minute quarter against their opponent, and then uh, once we have a winner, they'll uh, they'll get this thing televised. But before the game, ESPN and ABC, they're going to have a Pro Bowl celebration, uh, including some interviews with some Pro Bowl players and whatnot. Now, the NFL Network is going to air the virtual Pro Bowl game at 8 p.m. on Sunday, January 31st, and 12.30 a.m. on Monday, February 1st. So if you want to catch that, just tune into the NFL Network. But we'll move over to the National Basketball Association. Real quick uh, checkup from last week. I talked about Indiana Pacers uh, uh, player Karis LeVert. They traded. uh, Pacers were involved in that blockbuster deal with the Nets that sent Harden to uh, to Brooklyn. But Karis LeVert had a uh, pre-trade physical exam. They found a mass on his left kidney. Well, that was diagnosed as renal cell 
carcinoma. And Lavert has already had successful surgery to remove the mass. He is expected to make a full recovery. However, he is out indefinitely. No surprise there. But that's great news for Karis Lavert and the Indiana Pacers. But we'll jump over real quick to the NCAA and college football. Uh, the Tennessee Volunteers football program, they have hired University of Central Florida head coach Josh Heupel as their next head coach. Now, Heupel had been the UCF head coach for the past three seasons. His record was 28-8, and including a 12-1 and season, his very first there in 2018. Now, with Josh Heupel in charge at UCF the last three years, UCF's offense averaged 42.2 points per game. So that's great news for the Tennessee offense. You're getting a great offensive mind there. Uh, Josh Heupel was actually the quarterback at Oklahoma in their 2000 national championship season. He was actually the runner-up in the Heisman Trophy voting that year when Chris Winkie won. Uh, Josh Heupel was second, and some guy named Drew Brees finished in third in the Heisman voting. But uh, that's interesting hire for Tennessee Uh, They've kind of been bottom feeders in the SEC these last several years. Uh, Hopefully they can get it turned around there with Heupel. But a couple of quick notes back in the PGA Tour. Uh, PGA Tour announced that the 2022 PGA Championship has a new home. I discussed a couple of episodes ago that the tournament was originally scheduled to take place at the Trump National Golf Club in Bedminster, New Jersey. But the PGA decided uh, to remove the major championship from a Donald Trump golf course. So they announced this past week that the 2022 PGA Championship is going to be played at the Southern Hills Country Club in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And that is still scheduled to take place May 19th through the 22nd of 2022. Now, speaking of 2022, the United States announced a captain for the 2022 United States President's Cup team, and that is Davis Love III. So Davis Love III will be charged with uh, getting a solid group of U.S. golfers to go compete at the President's Cup, which is uh, going to be played at the Quail Hollow Golf Course there in 2022. So from a veteran golfer to an amateur golfer, amateur golfer Kaimu Johnson was set to make his PGA Tour debut this week at the Farmers Insurance Open on a sponsor's exemption. But at the beginning of the week, he tested positive for COVID, so he obviously had to withdraw, which is a real bummer. Uh, But as a result of that, the Honda Classic, which takes place March 15th through the 21st this year, they awarded Johnson a sponsor's exemption for their tournament. So Johnson will get to make his PGA Tour debut just uh, about eight weeks later than he was hoping. So uh, at least he has that he can look forward to. Uh, But that's going to wrap up the 25th episode of the Sports Island podcast. I hope you all enjoyed that one. Uh, As always, uh, if you enjoy the podcast, you can rate, review, and subscribe it. You can also find it on Facebook uh, or any major podcast platform at Sports Island Podcast. Uh, Stay safe, be well, and we'll catch you on Sports Island next time.